Well, two years ago, just over two years ago, on the 1st of February 2020, 31-year-old Samuel Davidson started the day around 7 a.m. with his first drink, a vodka cruiser. He spent the rest of the day um, lounging at a mate's house poolside, drinking heaps more and taking a few ecstasy pills. Just before 8 p.m., he got into his ute, drunk and high on drugs. In the suburb of Oatlands in Sydney's west, he sped through a red light, swerved anti-clockwise through a roundabout, and went at 133 kilometers an hour in a 50-kilometer zone. And of course, he lost control of the car. He mounted a curb on the fo- onto the footpath at full speed. At around 8 p.m., seven kids walked to the local shop to get an ice cream. The ute with the drunk uh, and drugged-up driver plowed into the seven kids. And in a flash, four of the kids were mowed down and killed, three of them from the same family. You probably know of it. Sienna, eight years old. This isn't working. Angela, 12. Anthony, 13. And their, thir- and their 11-year-old cousin, Veronique. John Stott, who is a Christian author, said this, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. We've been doing four big questions, and in some sense, we probably saved the heaviest question, the most difficult question to last. As we speak, the suffering of war in Ukraine is just starting. As missiles over the last couple of days have rained down on their cities, people fleeing for their lives, millions of refugees, men and women separated from each other and from their loved ones. And the suffering has just started. But it's not just the world out there, is it? I mean, among our church family here at SWEC, there are those who are battling cancer. There are people with chronic physical and mental illnesses. There are those who have suffered from domestic violence, survived sexual abuse. There are those who have lost children, lost parents, lost siblings. Those who are unemployed and struggling to make ends meet. Those grieving from relationship breakups. Those grieving their singleness or their infertility. Those struggling with loneliness. And that's just the beginning of the list. Suffering is everywhere, is it not? And it touches everyone. And this is why every religion and every philosophy and every worldview has to deal with it. It's not just a Christian problem, it's everyone's problem. Now, as we've been doing the last three weeks, um, I'm here to ask you to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus and ask yourself if there is something remarkably powerful and maybe unique in what Jesus has offered his people for the last 2,000 years in suffering? And if so, what is it? You know, the Abdallah family who lost three out of those four children. You probably know by now that they are followers of Jesus. They're Christians. Danny and Layla, in one of their earliest appearances on TV after losing their their three children and a niece, surprisingly, shockingly almost, publicly on TV, forgave the driver. And now, as you know, 1st of February every year is now called I Forgive Day. Now, of course, we don't want to minimize their grief and how enormous their suffering is. But do you notice there that these guys found the resources in their faith and trust in Jesus to somehow let go and forgive even? And today I hope to show you why. Why Bible believers and Jesus followers have some answers to this huge problem of suffering and evil. Now, I want to be careful there. 
we don't have all the answers. We have some answers. See, God doesn't tell us everything. But Jesus' followers believe that he has some answers and that these answers might just be enough, not just for the world out there, but maybe for you today. So I want to help take you through four steps towards an answer, okay? These are some answers, and we'll just go through them one by one. The first one is this. The Bible says that the ultimate origin of suffering is our sin, okay? Ultimate is a really important word there, ultimate. Um, if you want a summary of the Bible's storyline, it begins like this. God made it, but we broke it. Okay, pretty easy. God made it, we broke it. See, God created a world without suffering, without evil, a world that humanity under Him could actually rule in a perfect way. And so when humanity sinned, sin is just another way of saying we've turned away from God, what happened is a rupture actually formed in this good creation. And you see it in places like Romans 8, where it says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Uh, the context of the passage is talking about suffering. It's a creation groaning because it's ruptured. Now, the Bible wants to say that God is in complete control of suffering, but you see, here's the thing. It never makes God the one who causes it directly. Okay, so it's not right to say that God made the cancer grow or God killed the Abdallah children. The Bible would not allow us to go that far in saying that because there's a difference between God allowing versus God causing. You, you, you kind of get what I mean? Now, this is different, by the way. I want to just touch on the idea of karma. Okay, karma is a view, especially in Eastern religions, that bad things come back to people who do bad things. All right, that sounds, at least initially, quite like quite an attractive view. But I want to suggest that karma is actually quite one of the most unjust responses to suffering because it leads people to do nothing for the poor and suffering because if you come across a homeless person, maybe their karma is the reason why they're there. So rather than helping them, shouldn't you be, I mean, you can help them to help your karma, but maybe they're just paying out their karma for something done in a former life. And so it takes away compassion. It actually makes you judgmental at those who are suffering. That's the karma view. Right? That's not the Bible's view. And we've got to be careful that we, we don't do that in, in Christian ways. Um, people, while the pandemic was raging, you know, there are people, Christians or so-called Christians will say, well, the pandemic, COVID is a punishment for specific sins of our world. You know, God is targeting Western nations or specific people or whatever. And, and it's sort of like a Christianized view of karma. Now, I want to say that the Bible never puts suffering in the light not even in the language of karma, nor in the idea of karma. And in fact, if you look at what Jesus said when he was approached with this idea of, you know, a Jewish view of karma, look what he said. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? You see, people were having a karma view. These people died because they were worse sinners than others. Jesus says, verse 3, I tell you, no. All those 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Jesus says, I tell you, no. Right? Karma ignores that really important word, ultimate. 
Remember, the Bible story, uh, answer is the ultimate reason of our suffering is sin. It's not the particular or specific reason for your suffering is particularly your sin. The ultimate reason that we live in a groaning, suffering world and we're surrounded by suffering because humanity as a whole ultimately caused it, right? When we turned away from God. So war and murder and abuse, these are very directly due to humanity's sin, the way we've turned away from God's good order. But even natural disasters and sickness, the Bible would say they are a result of a natural order that, as I said, was ruptured, gone out of whack, because we all sin as humanity. Right? That's the Bible's view. The ultimate cause of suffering, origin of suffering and evil is our own sin. But the second thing towards an answer is this. God temporarily allows suffering. You see, you might be thinking, well, hey, God is all-powerful. Okay, maybe he didn't cause suffering directly. He allows it. But if he's all-powerful, then he could end it if he wants, right? And so if he doesn't end it, then that's a real problem for the idea of a Christian God. In fact, one of the classic arguments against God's existence comes from this strand of thinking. Uh, let me show you the logic for those who like this kind of stuff. Um, so this is a classic argument. If we assume that an all-powerful God could end all suffering, and if, and if an all-loving God would want to end all suffering, again, both things are true, by the way, in our picture of God, but then the fact that suffering exists leads you, doesn't it, to the conclusion that an all-powerful, all-loving God does not exist. Yeah, that's the logic. Now, it sounds convincing because it seems like you can't have both. Unless, of course, you understand that the Bible has a fuller picture of this logic, that the logic itself needs modifying. You see, what if an all-powerful and all-loving God has good reasons unknown to us for not ending suffering and not preventing it in every case? What if an all-powerful and all-loving God has good reasons that we don't know, but there are good reasons for Him, as God, for not ending all suffering and not preventing it in every case? See, if you go by that logic, then you just got to add a third assumption, don't you? Right? So yes, all-powerful God could end all suffering, and all-loving God would want to end all suffering, but here's a, how about the third one? An all-powerful and all-loving God has good reasons unknown to us for temporarily allowing suffering. Now, the fact then that suffering exists does not then disprove the existence of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Do you see what I mean? Right? There's another line to that logic that the Bible adds. That there may be reasons currently unknown to us. And that's why I say we don't have all the answers. God has shown us some answers because there's stuff that God doesn't reveal in every case why he would allow some evil and suffering. And yes, at times, it seems to us to be a vast, concentrated amount of suffering, but he has his reasons and we don't know about it. Now, one person who suffered a lot in the Bible, a guy called Joseph, uh, this is what he concluded when he uh, talked to those who harmed him, his, his own brothers, by the way, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And that's reflecting that knowledge there, that God had his reasons. Joseph found out right at the end. And in fact, the whole people of future people of Israel were saved because of it. But at the time, he couldn't because God didn't reveal it to him. 
Now, at this point, you might object, no, that's impossible. That doesn't work. That's wrong. Well, can I just gently push back and say, if you say, no, God can't do it like that, or that because he hasn't shown me the reasons, therefore he doesn't have good reasons, can I just gently suggest that 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 requires us to be placed above God? Because we have to end up saying that in our finite human minds, that just because I can't see a reason, that therefore there is no good reason. Do you see what I mean? You have to make a call that you know more than God. How about the third one? God hates suffering and will fix it. Okay, remember, God is all loving and all good. So he does hate suffering. And he wants suffering to end. His heart bleeds at the way that we have ruined our world and ourselves. You see it in Psalm 103, where God says, As Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Right? He knows how frail and weak and how hurt we are. He hates suffering. And because he is all good and all just, he will do something about it. The same psalm says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. You see, there is a day coming, it's called Judgment Day, the day when God will make all the wrong things right, including suffering and evil, where God will end suffering. Because he is so loving and so powerful that he will one day restore everything that was lost due to sin. I said that the... uh, Easy way of remembering the Bible story is that God made it, we broke it. Well, there's a third part to it. It's God made it, we broke it, God fixes it. That's the third part. And I want to give you a picture of what that fix looks like. Right at the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation. This is what God promises will happen. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And this next verse he may be saying to you right now, He will wipe every tear from your eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Remember, God temporarily allows suffering because He cares so much. There is a day coming when all suffering will end. Now, I want you to know this is a really different type of hope to a lot of other religions, particularly Eastern ones. Christian hope is not an escape from the broken world. But do you see how this is actually about God coming to restore and renew this world that was broken. God does not give up on the world he has made. He's not going to zap us to another dimension. He's going to come and restore this broken earth and make all things right. And the proof that God will do this, just to fast forward a little bit, a bit of a a preview, of course, is that Jesus rose from the dead. That Jesus rose from the dead. You see, Jesus, when he walked out of the tomb, is an advance payment, a down payment, a deposit that guarantees that the whole earth would one day itself be resurrected. That's why the resurrection and Easter is so important for Christians. That's a guarantee. 
Now, at this point, you might be saying, well, that sounds great. But why hasn't God done it now? Why, why, why didn't God do it before COVID? Why didn't God do it before the war in Ukraine? Or take that, the war, wars of the last century. Well, here's the reason. The reason is because when God's going to do it, He is going to do a complete job of it. Okay? This picture in Revelation is a complete renewal, is a complete eradication of evil. But here's the thing, remember, suffering is ultimately a result of our sin. So when God does a complete job of it, He will wipe out and judge all sin. He'll have to deal with the fruit, but He'll also have to deal with the root. But then we've got a problem, don't we? Because people who have sinned, and that's all of us, if we're not forgiven and right with God at the point where He renews all things, guess what? We become part of the problem if God is going to eradicate all evil. You see it? You see it there? And so why hasn't God done it yet? Well, if He had done it 10 years ago, how many of you would be able to spend eternity with Him in the new creation? If you became Christians in the last 10 years, aren't you glad, for your sake at least, that He waited? And that's actually what the Bible says, that the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's why God hasn't done it yet. And he, that's why, at least in part, He's temporarily allowed suffering to give you time and those around you. But the final step, and this is really getting at the unique heart of the Christian good news, the gospel. And that is, in Jesus, God became a man and he suffered with us and he suffered for us. I read this week that Christians and Jews in Ukraine actually united to pray that psalm we read out. And that's why I wanted the whole psalm read out. When Hamish read out that psalm, you need to know that this is the psalm that especially they have been praying in Ukraine. And it's so fitting, isn't it? As missiles rain down on cities and civilians, um, it's, a, it's a psalm that has a cry for help for someone suffering the assault of the enemy. Um, so you see parts of that psalm where the writer talks about being a city under siege, verse 21. Verse 13, terror on every side. Or verse 9, distress, eyes weak with sorrow, soul and body with grief. And so verse 1, he takes refuge in the Lord. It's such a fitting psalm, isn't it? But I'll, I'll tell you what's really remarkable about this psalm. It's not just a fitting psalm for those suffering right now in Ukraine. It's actually a psalm that God himself cried out in the person of Jesus when he himself suffered. Did you know that? Because you read through that psalm, almost every line rings true of God's own suffering in the life of Jesus. Like the, the terror, the tears, the affliction, the anguish. Or the trap set for him by those who conspired against him. Or how he felt abandoned by those closest to him. And the abandonment he ultimately experienced on the cross. Even from God his Father. And how we know that this was a psalm that was on Jesus' lips in his deepest suffering is because, guess what? His, the last words on the cross for Jesus were what? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Almost word for word from Psalm 31. 
So I want you to know that in the end, these logical arguments aren't going to be enough. They're good, they're helpful, but they're not enough. When we suffer, all the philosophy and theology can only comfort us to a certain degree. We actually need personal assurance. See, how do we actually know that God cares about me in my suffering? Well, God cares, don't you know, because He Himself suffered. You know that Islam and Judaism consider it to be quite blasphemous that God would become a man and suffer. But actually, the glory of the Christian gospel is right there. What they consider to be blasphemous is the glory of the gospel, that God would become a man, that God would be born in poverty, that God would work all his adult life, that God would have lost his human dad when he was young, that he would have been misunderstood and opposed, that he would be betrayed by one of his closest friends, that he would be falsely accused, that he would be tortured and crucified at the young age of only about 33. That's the glory of the gospel. Because he did it for us. He did it for us. Look at this remarkable couple of verses from the book of Hebrews. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, too, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those uh, who were those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You see, God cares enough about our suffering, not only to suffer himself, but he actually suffered for our sin in our place. It's not just a point of God wanting to understand what it's like to suffer. He came specifically to suffer for our sin in our place. Why? Because remember, our sin was the ultimate cause of suffering. And judgment is coming. And unless our sins are dealt with and forgiven, we become part of the problem on Judgment Day. So what does the Son of God, what does Jesus do? He comes and suffers and takes our place so that we can be forgiven. So I wonder if today you are a skeptic or a seeker. And just remember this question time after this, the link is there. Please, please put in some questions. I already got a couple, I think overnight. Um, that I'll answer in a moment after we sing our last song. But if you are a skeptic, and you might be, about some of the uh, answers that, are, that I've been given, uh, that, that I've been giving, um, can I at least ask you to be skeptical of the alternatives as well? Like, it's okay to be skeptical um, about the Christian answer, but please be skeptical about the alternatives, because suffering is a problem for every religion and every philosophy. So ask the hard questions of that, non-Christian answers. You know, um, atheism's answer to suffering is probably, for me, the most depressing. Christopher Hitchens, a famous atheist, before he died, when, when, in fact, when he was diagnosed with cancer, he said, to the dumb question, why me, the cosmos barely bothers to return the reply, why not? And then just before he died, he said, I'm here as a product of process of evolution, which doesn't make many exceptions, which rates life relatively cheaply. That's his answer to suffering. Now, that might be your answer, but is that the best answer there is? Be skeptical about the alternatives. But you might be a seeker. You might be a seeker. And if you, whether it's through suffering or just through these last four questions or some other part of your life, are a seeker, then I want to tell you that 
God can actually use suffering for his people and for those who seek him. Because he wants suffering to be a wake-up call. Because life is short. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And sometimes you need the wake-up call that suffering jolts us to, to remind us of that. Um, C.S. Lewis, the famous writer and Christian, said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to wake a deaf world. And by the way, he wrote those words having lost his wife. God uses it to wake up a deaf world. And you may be here listening to this because suffering has led you to seek. And I kind of want to just suggest you don't waste it. Don't waste it. I talked about Danny and Layla Abdallah and losing four ch- uh, three children plus a niece. Shortly after their tragedy, listen to their words. This is what they said. To begin to encapsulate or express the heart-wrenching pain and sorrow we are experiencing in this time would require endless words of despair. This is an unimaginable tragedy, unfathomable beyond all description. Our faith in Jesus Christ remains the foundation of our family, and we believe it will continue to help us through this difficult time. Each day that passes is a day closer to the day we are reunited with our angels. We will look forward to this moment, not backwards, at yesterday's pain. It is our hope that through this, all will know that no matter the pain or despair, God will be a safeguard through the dark valley. He is in control, and eternity sits in the palm of His divine hand. Our life here on earth is but a vapor in comparison to His eternal plans and the purpose God holds for His children. This is a very heavy cross that we've been chosen to carry, but it is through God's love that we keep going. You hear it? See, friends, everyone will suffer. Without exception, everyone here will one day die. But those who have Jesus have something that even suffering and death cannot destroy. And God is offering it to you today. So will you consider Jesus? Well, we're going to get ready to sing. I'll get um, our song leaders to come up, Winnie and Mark. And uh, please remember that we have question time after this. So uh, feel free to anonymously write in your questions. I'll do my best to answer. And this is also on the form, there's a second part where if you want to find out more, if you are a seeker or today has caused you to seek, um, let us know how we can get in touch with you so we can invite you to something else or meet with you to investigate a little bit more. Because this is the last week of four big questions, but we hope it's just the beginning for you. All right, we're going to sing and I'll come back in. Um, answer some questions.